Ephesians chapter 3. And for those who have not been here, I would just note that this is Paul's great letter that he's writing from prison to a church he had planted and yet to a people most of whom he had never met. Um, he had been away from this congregation for quite a long time, and yet the Lord has put them on his heart. He is burdened for them that they would be established in the truth of the grace of God. And there is arguably no letter that Paul has written. There is arguably no place in Scripture that so uh, focuses on the doctrine of God's free and sovereign grace in saving his people so much as is true of Ephesians. And Paul is bent on unpacking for his people the riches, what he calls the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so we are picking up this morning where we left off two Lord's Days ago. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And as always, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14, now the apostle writes, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, George Matheson, you may have heard of his name. He was a somewhat uh, beloved hymn writer of the middle of the 19th century. He was also a minister in Scotland and a very revered minister what you may or may not know about George Matheson is that he was born almost entirely blind. He was the only child in his family that was. And yet the Lord did a work of grace in his heart when he was a very young man. Matheson would go on to study at the University of Glasgow. He would go on, as I've noted, to become a very celebrated preacher for um, many decades. And yet, as the years went on, his eyesight worsened more and more. So much so that when he was studying and preparing for ministry, he had met a young woman that he longed to marry. And as his own account has noted for us, his speculation is that she broke off the engagement because she didn't want to marry a man that was blind. The pain that agonized his heart, no doubt, drove him, as we know, uh, into the arms of Christ and to the Savior. His sister would come and she would uh, become a caregiver for George Matheson. She would help him write his sermons because he couldn't see well. He had a profound memory, apparently. And she would read to him. She would help write his sermons for him. And he depended on his sister for just about everything to get him through his life and his ministry. Well, his sister in time uh, came herself to be married. And that meant that she could no longer care for her brother the way that she did. And 
Matheson will uh, uh, recount in his own words the, the, the pain and the agony that he felt. I think not only losing his sister, but she being married and him thinking back on the pain he experienced when the woman he loved left him because she didn't want to marry a blind man. And yet in that moment in agony, as Matheson had turned to the Lord in five short minutes, five minutes, he says, he wrote what has become one of the most beloved hymns that we often sing, and that is, O love that will not let me go. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. And listen to that last line, O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. What enabled George Matheson to write something like that is that he had a deep and profound sense in his soul of the love of Jesus for him. Now, that's not something that every Christian has in his or her soul. Not every Christian has a deep and profound sense of the love of Christ for him or her. In fact, I would argue that most Christians do not have a deep and profound sense of the love of Christ. It is one thing for us to have the propositional truths. We know that Christ loves us. We know those verses, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. We know those verses that Christ has loved us and he has shed his blood for us. We know all that the scripture teaches. And yet Christianity is not just those propositional truths, though it is certainly founded on that. Christianity has, if I can say this this morning carefully, a mystical aspect to it. And it has a deepening and a widening and a developing aspect to it. And it's something that every Christian really needs to come to terms with because what the Apostle Paul is going to do in this section is he is going to pray that those that he has been writing to, those he has already prayed for, those he has set out all these glorious truths about the grace of God in Christ to, that they would have their souls strengthened preeminently in the knowledge of the length and breadth and width and height of the love of Christ that Paul says surpasses knowledge. That there is something mystical, as it were, when the soul comes to understand this. You know, I'll say this this morning. It's, there's a well-known account about Jonathan Edwards where he had drawn into such deep and intimate fellowship with the triune God, and it was so overwhelming in his soul that he begged the Lord to depart from him. I'm not sure many Christians have experienced that. I've experienced something close to that at one time in my life. So overwhelming. And yet Paul understands that, that many Christians need this, that they need to understand there is more. There are depths. There is more in understanding in your soul the, the union and the communion that we have in Jesus Christ. And so he is praying again. He is acknowledging that God has to do this, that he has to be at work in his people. And so this is the second great prayer that Paul prays in this letter. You may remember that back in chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, he has prayed that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they could see what was theirs, so that they could, 
They could comprehend to some degree what was theirs. And now he's praying that God would strengthen them in their inner person so that they would know these things in their experience. I want us to consider three things this morning. I want us to consider first the source of strengthening grace. Then I want us to consider the substance of strengthening grace. And then I want us to consider the sufficiency of the God of strengthening grace, the source, the substance, and the sufficiency of strengthening grace. Now notice this, Paul has said in verse 14, for this reason. Now this is, this is the third time Paul has said that, and so it has confused commentators. What is the reason why Paul is praying? And if you read any reputable theologians, they are going to give you five or six or seven different options, and all of them are plausible, and yet Paul has to have something in mind. He has to have a reason in mind. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And I think very simply, he is reflecting on what he has just told them in chapter 3 about the ministry that God had given them him to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make of two people, Jew and Gentile, one new man in Christ. Paul is reflecting on the glory of gospel ministry and what it accomplishes. And so he is also recognizing, you've got to listen very carefully, he is recognizing that nothing happens in gospel ministry unless the Lord sovereignly brings about the fruit of the ministry of the gospel in the hearts of God's people. Um, it is possible for us to listen Sunday after Sunday, month after month, year after year, for an entire lifetime to real, true, biblical gospel preaching and have nothing happen in our souls. It is possible to sit under the ministry of the word every Sunday and to have nothing happen inside. And that is a frightening thought. And yet Paul is depending on the Lord. He recognizes that he can go out, he can preach, he can proclaim the mysteries, he can teach them, he can instruct the people of God. But notice, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, that it is insufficient to merely teach and preach if, if we are not seeking to pray down the divine blessing. That's what Paul's doing. Paul is saying, for real effective gospel ministry, we need to pray down the divine blessing. And so he's teaching us the source of strengthening grace. He's saying there is a God and Father, and he addresses God the Father specifically. And, and he says he is the Father of all the families on earth. That means believing Jews and believing Gentiles, what he's been talking about. He is the God of believers in every nation. We have one Father over all, and he, he is at work in all his people, and he is he is the one who has purposed in himself to do all these things. And Paul has great confidence that because he has purposed to do these things, that he will bow his knees to him to call on him to do it in the souls of the people to whom he is writing and to whom he has preached. Now, what's amazing about this, and you would totally miss this if you were checked out this morning, um, and, and the amazing thing here is remembering where Paul is when Paul prays this. Remember, Paul is in prison. I was reflecting on the, um, the often paltry nature of our prayer lives 
mine included, and thinking, here is the great apostle in chains, and he is writing inspired letters by the Holy Spirit, and he is pouring his heart out in prayer for the people of God. And what's remarkable about that, don't miss this, what's remarkable about that is that nothing can stop the purposes of God. Not even the chains that Paul is in. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says the enemy can confine Paul to a cell. He can bolt and bar doors. He can chain him to soldiers. He can put bars in the window. He can have him confined physically, but he can never obstruct the way from the heart of the humblest believer to the heart of the eternal God. Wow. The enemy can put you in prison. He can confine you to bars and chains, and yet he can never stop the heart of the humblest believer from entering into the presence of the heart of the everlasting and eternal God. That's an awesome meditation. Paul has direct access into the very throne room of heaven when he's in prison, and he is teaching us that we who are not in chains ought to be praying these prayers recurrently. He is teaching us the source of strengthening grace. He is teaching us in that that God the Father is the object. He is the one to whom we are directing our prayers through the Son, by the Spirit. Notice this is a very Trinitarian prayer. He mentions the Father in verse 14. He mentions the Spirit in verse 16. He mentions Christ throughout, that it is the triune God at work and directing our thoughts up to the Father, crying out to him to do what he alone can do. Because remember, at the end of the day, we can know all the truth in the world and cannot change one inch or centimeter of our souls unless God reaches into the very depths of our being by his Holy Spirit to do what he alone can do. Um, I love this quote. I heard Derek Thomas say this this uh, this week, he said, and, and you know, if, if you really love psychology, please just be merciful to receive this quote for what it is. Um, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can go deeper than any psychologist can go. Don't miss that. The Holy Spirit can go deeper than any psychologist can go. He goes into the very inner depths of the hearts of men. That's why Paul's teaching us this prayer is so important. He is, he is teaching us that there is one that can reach into the very inner depths of your heart and do for you what no one else can do. Your spouse cannot do. Your children cannot do. Your jobs, your successes, your ex experiences, nothing can do. No psychiatrist, no psychologist, no doctor, no medication, nothing can do for us in the inner depths of our souls, what the triune God alone can do. And that ought to give us great confidence to be trusting him. You know, how often we find ourselves complaining about what we want, what we wish we had, how we wish we felt this way or had this, or this relationship was better, and, and how slow we are to cry out to the Lord for that. Um, if the people of God... We're on our knees, the way that Paul teaches us to be. What, what spiritual power and growth and 
strengthening would we know in our souls? You know, we, we have a prayer meeting that um, uh, the McCoys helped start here on Sunday morning during Sunday school hour. That, that is a good and right thing. Um, I need them to be praying for the ministry of the word in this church. We need to be praying together. We need to be praying on our own. You know, it's very interesting. Paul includes two of his greatest prayers in this very short letter. And I meditated on that, and I, I thought, why? Because you don't find this anywhere else. I think Paul is teaching us that, that if, if we subtract the vital grace of bowing on our knees and crying out to God to, to give us in our souls what he alone can do, everything else, even the greatest teaching and doctrine, it's all in vain. It's all in vain. He does it right after he sets out the spiritual blessings in chapter 1. He does it again here at the end of chapter 3. He is teaching us this ought to be our practice. We ought to leave here today, and we ought to at some point today get on our knees and cry out and say, Lord, you do it. You do what you alone can do. Do it in my soul. Do it in the soul of my spouse. Do it in my children. Do it in those with whom we gather. Do it with my coworkers and neighbors. We ought to be crying out to him. Paul is giving us a model to whom we ought to pray, for what we ought to pray, how we ought to pray. Um, And most of this prayer is taken up with him teaching us what we ought to be praying for. You know, what, what's most interesting about Paul's prayers is not always what's in them, but what's not in them. Paul never, ever prays for merely temporal or material things. He will tell us that he prayed that the thorn in his flesh would be taken away, and we know it's right and good to pray for temporal things. But Paul's teaching us there are greater things for which we ought to be praying. All of the spiritual benefits of Christ— Here he's teaching us we ought to be praying for the strengthening grace of Christ. These are people who already know the saving grace of Christ. They've already been brought into his kingdom. They're already redeemed. They are already forgiven. They already have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But what they lack is an inner awareness. What they lack is an inner experience of God's power at work in them strengthening them in the Christ that already indwells them. Um, I was trying to think of an illustration for this, and I I can't think of a great one. But I thought of the illustration when, when those of us who are married were first married, most of us probably lived in very, very tiny homes. And, um, and as your family grows and develops, um, you move into bigger homes, and, and you, you expand your families. And yet, and yet the, love, the love that was there at the beginning, it was real, and it was there, and it wasn't dependent on the growth of the family and the development of that. But there was always more to grow into. There's always more to develop into. And, and what Paul is saying here in this is he's saying, there is more. You already have Christ. You already have the knowledge of what Jesus has done. But I want you to know in, in your spiritual experience that there, there, are, there are lengths and breadths and widths and heights to Christ that you do not yet know in your soul, that you have not yet experienced. Um, it's interesting. He is going to set out as he 
teaches us about the substance of spiritual grace, he's going to set out six things, six different things for which he's praying. Notice the first thing he prays is for soul strengthening. Notice this. It says, according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul understands that the people of God need to be strengthened. I have five um, bar stools that have some kind of bolt underneath them. And every three or four days, because I'm fat and my children spin around on them, those bolts get loose. And so almost every week, my wife's laughing because I am fat, <laughs> almost every week, I am turning those over and tightening those bolts or I'm reaching under trying to do it in some kind of sophisticated way because I can't use the chair if it's not strengthened, if it's not secure. Well, in the same way, and I know that's a cheap illustration, in the same way, though, believers need to be strengthened because we are weak, because we lack what we need, because we don't have anything in us, because we have no good in us. The Apostle Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong because Christ said, my power is made perfect in your weakness. There are professing Christians who think they are strong. They are weak. If you meet Christians who act as like they're strong, they are not strong. And even if they are strong, there is more strengthening that they need. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying you need your inner man in the very inner depths of your being. That, that, that inner life, the seat of your being, the, the very spirit that God breathed into you, the, the, the moral, conscious, affectional aspects. We need our minds renewed with the truth. We need our souls enlarged in the knowledge of God. We need our souls drawn to Christ. I often think of this verse in Psalm, in, I believe it's Psalm 27, David says, when you said, seek my face, my heart said, your face, Lord, I will seek. That's, that's what we need. We need in our soul a pulling to the very throne of grace. Um, as I've noted already, the Holy Spirit can go deep. He can go down into uh, parts of us that we don't even have an anatomical name for. There, there is a major part of you that doctors can't see, can't treat, don't know what it is. I sat in a car with the man that, that uh, developed Prozac. We were going to the Masters um, many, many, many years ago, and, and I said to him, you know that that doesn't actually solve anything, right? And he said, oh, I know. It's the man that made Prozac. He said, oh, I know. It doesn't, it doesn't solve anything. He said, he's, and he was not a Christian, he said there is a physical and there is some spiritual dynamic to man and, and nothing we make is going to fix that spiritual aspect and part of man. It's amazing that a man that doesn't know Christ can understand that. Uh, here Paul understands that God is wanting to do that. Let me say this this morning. This is not an uncertain thing. If we pray for this, God is already vouchsafed to do it. How confident are you in that? 
Because I know when I ask myself that question, if I was really confident that God has vouchsafed to do this in me, I would be on my knees a whole lot more. And I wouldn't be complaining and trying to figure out different things to get my way through life as much as I do. You see, that's Paul is wanting to stir you up to understand that God is committed. And if we trust him to grant us to be strengthened with power through our spirit and our inner being, he will do it. Now, the second thing he prays for, he says in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, I've already said, Christ already indwells every believer by the spirit. But there is more of Christ to indwell you. Um, Jesus is God. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his divine nature. There is always more of Christ that we need indwelling us. And then I would add to that that we so often, every time we sin, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. He is the third person of the Godhead, but he, he is called in Scripture the Spirit of Christ. He is the one that forms Christ in us. And so when we have grieved the Spirit, and, and Paul no doubt is thinking about all of these things, he knows that it is good and right that we pray that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Listen, what more astonishing truth than that the Creator and the Savior of the world has chosen to take up residence in your heart? That's amazing. As sinful and polluted as we are, the one who is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners has said, I will dwell in them. I will be in them. I will make my home in them. And by doing so, I will conform them more and more to my image. Isn't that wonderful? That's the second thing Paul prays for. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The third thing he prays is that they may know spiritual stabilizing. Listen to this. He says that you being rooted and grounded in love, that you may being rooted and grounded in, in love. Now, Paul mixes two metaphors here. One of those meta metaphors is horticultural. One of them is architectural. And he says, I want you to be rooted. I want you to be like a great oak tree. When we lived in Savannah, Anna and I had a beautiful oak tree, huge oak tree, um, right by our driveway. And the roots were so deep and so strong that they cracked the driveway apart and started cracking the foundation of the garage. Now, that's, those are some strong roots that can break apart cement. That, that is... That is that is firm and strong. And Paul says, I want you to be rooted in love. I want you to be rooted in Christ's love. I don't think he's talking about our love for God here. I think he's talking about God's love for us. I want you to know that your roots are grounded in the fact that God has loved us and has given himself for us. So that if I feel unmoored, if I feel unmoored in my life, it's because I'm not rooted sufficiently in the love of God for me. Um, I'm, not, I'm not grounded like a foundation on the foundation of Christ and his love as I ought to be. And so Paul's praying that they might be rooted and grounded, that they might have spiritual stabilizing. 
And then he prays yet another prayer for them. Notice this. He prays, and this is the, really the centerpiece. He prays that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, this is one of the great verses in the Bible. No doubt all of you have it memorized. It's one we meditate on often. It's one we pray about often. And yet it's one that we really can't understand merely intellectually. Paul is actually saying that, that what he's praying for surpasses knowledge, not bypasses, surpasses. So it doesn't bypass knowledge. It starts with knowledge. But, but there, are, there are dimensions to the love of Christ for you that can never be fully understood and can only really be experienced. There are dimensions to the love of Christ, Paul is saying this, that can never be fully understood, not even in eternity, and can only be experienced. I heard, I heard a friend of mine uh, in ministry say that one of his mentors used to always ask him what he was reading because his mentor just wanted to learn all the time. This was his mentor. And he was talking about the importance of, of leaders being men and women who learn, who are always learning more and developing. And, and then he said, well, he's in heaven now and he's learning a whole lot more than he ever did before. In the same way, Paul's saying, there are things you have not experienced about the love of Christ that, that, that we need to press into in our Christian experience. Now, I love this quote, Ian Hamilton, Scottish Presbyterian pastor, said, here is a fourfold dimensional love that is truly out of this world. It is broad enough to embrace the world. It is long enough to last for eternity. It is high enough to lift us to heaven. It is deep enough to reach the most degraded of sinners. Isn't that awesome? I'm going to read that again. It's broad enough to embrace the whole world. It is long enough to last for eternity. It is high enough to lift us to heaven. It is deep enough to reach the most degraded of sinners. Um, now, I, I think in one sense, though, Paul is is picking up on what he had said back at the end of chapter 2. Remember, at the very end of chapter 2, look there at verse 21, he talks about the church and believers being built on the cornerstone of Christ, being built into a temple, a holy temple of the Lord, a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. And there is only one other time in all of the Scripture, there's only other times, one other example in which length, breadth, width and height are used, and that is the measurements of the temple. I think Paul is picking back up, and he's saying Christ is the temple. Christ is the one in whom we dwell and who dwells in us. He's already talked about Christ coming and dwelling in our hearts through faith. He is the chief cornerstone. Remember, Jesus said to the Jews, destroy this temple, speaking about his body, and in three days I will raise it up. He is the worship place of God. It is in him that the fullness of God dwells bodily. And that means if the infinite and eternal God dwells fully in Christ, and if Christ has a never-ending love for you, 
then that love is infinite and eternal. Don't miss that. If the infinite and eternal God dwells fully in Christ, and if that Christ has a never-ending love for you, which the Bible says he does, then we have to conclude that Christ's love is infinite and eternal, and that there are dimensions to it that we have not even begun to explore. Let me tell you when this really works. Whenever you sin. This really comes to bear when you have sinned against the Lord and you fear that he doesn't love you anymore. Because our hearts are so legal that when we have failed, we then often live under condemnation. Our, our assurance of pardon today, remember, was there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's just, just a little wonderful manifestation of his love, isn't it? And, and John tells us, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. He hasn't stopped loving. He, he's the propitiation for our sins. He's the advocate. He's the defense counselor. He's the one that intercedes on our behalf. He's the one who has already provided atonement for all our sins because he loved us. This is how we know the love of God. We look at the cross. Augustine, again, famously said, the cross was his pulpit, the message was love. What is Jesus doing on the cross? He's loving sinners like you and me. How do I know that? Because Scripture tells me that. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul says, God, speaking about the Father generally, demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies... Christ died for us. When we were helpless, Christ died for us. When we were without strength, he says, Christ died for us. Um, I was meditating this week. I was writing something on the first of the seven sayings on the cross, which is remarkable. The first thing that the Son of God prays when he's nailed to the tree as as the soldiers have just pierced his hands and feet, as he's writhing in pain, as they are mocking him, as he's being hoisted up and planted in the earth, as his bones are being um, out of joint because of the agony, as the psalmist said, and he can count all of his bones, as it were. He, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There, there are depths to that. There are lengths to that. There's height to that. Um, he is, he is praying for the very ones who have just crucified him. What love? What kind of love is that? You know, historians say that in 100 out of 100 cases, when criminals were nailed to a cross, they cussed and spit on bylookers. But the Son of God says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And the Father answers that prayer. Because the very people that cried out, crucify him, crucify him, that led him to be nailed to the tree, on the day of Pentecost, many of them, Peter said, you took him, you crucify him. And they were converted. Why? Because the Son of God loved sinners enough to pray, Father, forgive them. And he was nailed to the tree to make that forgiveness effectual for his people. There are depths. That's just one word that Jesus spoke on the cross. One little tiny manifestation of his love for sinners like us. What a savior. 
and how indifferent we often are to this. What a, what a tragedy that we care more about the love of people than we do about the love of the Son of God. I care more about attention from others than I do knowing more of the love of Christ. Um, John Calvin, I love this, he says, the love of Christ is the subject which ought to occupy our daily and nightly meditations. Are you meditating on the love of Christ? Um, we, we see it in the scriptures. We see it in every miracle, in every word, in, in every truth about what he's done for us, in every benefit that we have from, from him and in him. Um, when Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out, that's, that's one little dimension of his love for you. When he says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your soul. That's one little dimension of his love. When he says, my peace I give you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. One dimension of his love. And all of these are dimensions. And they're meant to be experienced in the astonishment of our souls. You know, how could, how could a man like George Matheson, who knew so much pain and so much heartache, how could he pen the words, a love that will not let me go, because he knew this some way experientially, more than just in his head. He knew it in the depths of his soul. He pressed into it. He experienced it. Even though it surpassed knowledge, he knew it. And then notice, Paul gives one more, and we'll stop here this morning. He says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, uh, John Stott has said that this is a, a staircase of spiritual blessings that Paul's praying for, that each one sort of exceeds the other and that the, the the top of the stair as you walk up that stair all the things he's praying for that you may be filled with all the fullness of god what does he mean by that he means that god wants to manifest his glory his joy what we call his communicable attributes his love his peace his gentleness his compassion his mercy those things he can give us he wants all of those things to be in us so that we would know more of the fullness of God. And it is never exhausting. It is a deep ocean full of blessing. Um, you know, sometimes I, I go out to one of the beaches here and I, I stand on the shore and I think about the vastness of the ocean starting at this place and, and where it goes everywhere. And I, I, can't, I can't see it covering the earth. You can't see the ocean covering the entire globe. Even from space, you can only see part of it. God is an ocean, an infinite fountain of goodness and blessing. And he says, I want to fill you with that so that you will know more of that, so that you will have more joy in me. Now look, Paul has given you five or six really good reasons to be praying for these things. And, and that's the simple application to us today. If we left here and we, we did not pray these things, we would be 
we would be short-selling ourselves and we would be missing out on the blessing that the Lord wants you to have. All of the things that Paul prayed for for the Ephesians, the Lord wants you to know. He wants you to seek him for and he wants you to experience. And God is not dangling them up here. He's not saying, here you go, maybe you can have them. But you got to go to them. And if we don't go to him, we won't experience it. And all that we think we know, we really won't know because we need to know it in our souls. I hope that you'll be encouraged this morning, especially out of all of these things, to be meditating on and and praying that God would make you to know what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you would be longing to know that in the inner depths of your being, that it would be gripping you in such a way that even in the most extreme agony, pain, and anguishing experiences of life, you would be able to say with George Matheson, O love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths may flow. It may flow. Richer and fuller may it be. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that you are a God who hears when we call on you, and we do bow in our hearts before you, even now, as Paul bowed his knees to you so long before, and we pray that you would give us, Lord, all of these strengthening graces, that you would strengthen us in our inner man and woman by your Spirit, that you would... um, Cause us to be rooted and grounded in love, that you would cause Christ to be formed in us, that you would make us to know what is the length and breadth and width and height of the love of Christ that passes knowledge, and that you would fill us with all of your fullness. Lord, we plead with you to do that for us. Would you not let us go from this place unchanged, unmoved, and and unmotivated to be crying out to you for these things? So would you do these things for us as you have promised in us? Christ has accomplished all that is necessary to make these realities in us. And so we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.